0: Although I haven't been in this room much in the last 20 years, I guess, uh, I used to be here a lot. Uh, when I, my fiancé at that time, was, who became my wife, was a board member here at the Washington Society and uh, Ed Erickson officiated at our wedding right down there uh, about 43 years ago. I actually have two people here this morning who were there at the wedding. Uh, Unbelievable as it may seem, I was once a participant in the young adult group here. uh, Anyway, Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, Easter is not my holiday. I have not now nor have I ever been a Christian. Uh, If I were in Baltimore today I probably wouldn't be at my own local congregation for fear that I'd be annoyed or alienated by what I, what would be said and sung. So, thank you for being here this morning to listen to me. I will try not to annoy or alienate you, although I might be a better ethical leader if I did those things more often. Uh, I do have to say that that given my, my views, I kind of enjoy speaking on Easter. There's something satisfying about this holiday, even for those of us who don't particularly observe it, uh, on a number of occasions. Spring holidays just tap into that that feeling of joy and rebirth. Social activists can identify with the story of a guy who was trying to change things and got clobbered by the powers that be. Uh, It provides us an opportunity to think about how we define our leaders in our own image. We can remind ourselves, because we're always forgetting this, that no great leader will save us. However you define it, we, you, I, our community, are responsible for our own salvation. It's a personal responsibility, but we're best at taking that responsibility when we do that in community. And remembering that we also have a responsibility for the larger communities in which we live. As Amanda just said, you know, we, we feel when people that, you know, we don't know, that are not part of our acquaintances perhaps, are gunned down on the street. That's our community. We need to care about that. We need to be concerned about that. So, this this is a good time to say that. Of course, any time is a good time to say that. Um, Religion is a tool for helping us live our lives and that this holiday can be one such tool. One of the tools that religion gives us is the story of Jesus and some of the teachings attributed to him. For my own theology, I disregard the anchoring events of the Christian year the conception and virgin birth at one end the death and resurrection at the other but what lies between even some of the miracles attributed miracles is very interesting and especially the parables still has power we can look at the contribution of jesus to see where they're helpful to us and where we need to go beyond them now i've put Jesus in my text and quotes, and maybe you noticed when I said that word I did this, Uh, because Jesus is an expansive concept. What we'll do this morning is talk about how we see Jesus in our own image, express appreciation for the values of uh, his story and teachings, and then invite you to participate in your own salvation. And take responsible for that. However, you might want to define salvation. Felix Adler talked about it as being saved alive. He was looking for salvation in this world. Well, <coughs> excuse me. First, the historical Jesus. Scholars from the 19th century on have spent enormous effort to try to uncover the historical Jesus. Modern scholars are still trying using the tools of art, the archaeologists and the historians, uh, the historian, they've learned much about the late Second Temple period and they've given us an enhanced understanding of the parables and the contemporary context of the Jewish story, of the, of the Jesus story, uh, or the story of Judaism in that period. We can still however know little, we still do know little and can know little about the historical Jesus. There are only a few scraps of contemporaneous information about, uh, from non-Christian sources. We can say that Jesus lived, we can say that he was crucified, or at least we can comfortably assume that because that was so horrible and degradating a de- uh, degrading a death that no one would make that up about their leader. Uh, We know that Herod executed John the Baptist. That's about it. Those three things. What did Jesus look like? Well, in the earliest image we have, such as mosaics, he was beardless in the Greek or Roman fashion. But doubtless, that's another example of a culture visualizing a leader, uh, as he would appear if he were one of them. He was probably short by today's standards, with dark curly hair and an untrimmed beard, very Semitic or Mediterranean looking. The the Romans probably saw him much as we see the Taliban. You know, that is, as someone looking very much not us. Uh, We can safely say that he was definitely not a tall blonde with aquiline features. But that really doesn't matter. Now, people have always imagined their gods and heroes looking like them. In the ancient world and even today, Jesus offers a way to personify or visualize God, something that we don't you know, often do in our monotheistic culture, uh, or if not God, to view him as a person of exemplary moral character. Artists has given us images of Jesus with the features of various parts of Africa and Asia uh, and the Americans. You have you, know, you have kind of Buddhist-looking Jesuses, you have you know uh, uh, Ethiopian uh, Jesuses, Nigerian Jesuses, uh, you know, Hispanic Jesuses. So you're free please to imagine him in any way that you want. Uh, Jesus also has many personalities through history a warrior, nurturer, judge, honest workman, radical organizer, and the scourge of money lenders. There is the stern Christus, uh, Christus panocrator you know, Christ the ruler of orthodox iconography. You know, this is the Jesus who's come back to judge and this is one bad character. Uh, he certainly could be stern. There's the great 19th century shape note hymn in the sacred harp tradition Uh, There's a wonderful hymn called Babylon is Fallen. And I see some people nodding and it's got that wonderful verse and I I probably shouldn't even try to sing it. But blow the trumpet from Mount Zion, Christ shall come a second time, ruling with a rod of iron all who now as foes combine. I mean this is a guy coming back with a iron stick to get those of you who are on the wrong side. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, spoke about Jesus, and particularly on Easter. He liked to do this, uh, seeing seeing him as an example of moral excellence. Jesus was an important figure for the two denominations that eventually merged to form the Unitarian Universalist denomination. The Universalists believed that Christ's sacrifice redeemed all mankind. So they and which is the doctrine that they evangelically spread through New England and the American West. Without Christ, without that sacrifice, there would be no universal salvation, no Universalist denomination. Early American Unitarians, as people who didn't believe in the Trinity, were ambivalent about Jesus and worried that their their uh, how their beliefs might jeopardize their status as Christians. This is not just a theological issue but it had legal implications because they were embroiled with the Congregationalists with property disputes all over New England. You know, if the church was owned by the community and the community ch- changed, some of the community changed its theology, does the church go with uh, you know, the new folks, the majority who believed in this new way? Or does it stay with the old folks, you know, people with the old beliefs whose descendants uh, started the church? Uh, In 1819, when William Ellery Channing gave his famous sermon, uh, Unitarian Christianity, which defined the uh, approach of Unitarians to Christians, uh, did it in Baltimore in 1819, uh, he said of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is one mind, one soul, one being, as truly as we are and equally distinct from God. You know, clearly not a Trinitarian here, clearly not seeing Jesus as part of God. However, he also stated in another sermon, I also believe in Jesus as more than a human being. Uh, So, you know, Jesus is still something very special, someone very special. Uh, Emerson caused a horrific scandal in his Divinity School address in 1838. You know, they invited this guy, who he was, a Unitarian minister, an up-and-coming intellectual, and oh boy, you know, we're gonna come to see this. This is a big lecture and he's gonna, you know, talk and we're all gonna be proud of him. And he and he went on, he, he denounced what he called the noxious exaggeration of the person of Jesus. And he said, all who hear me feel that the language that describes Christ to Europe and America is not the style of friendship and enthusiasm to a good and noble heart, but is appropriated and formal, paints a demigod, as the Orientals or the Greeks would describe Osiris or Apollo. There were many people in the early 19th century who thought of Jesus as a great moral leader or sage, uh, or spiritual hero, along with Socrates or Buddha or Marcus Aurelius, uh, rather than a savior, and of course many others who were appalled that people like Emerson would put the savior on the same plane as mere pagan thinkers. There was the British and American muscular Christianity movement of the that saw manly Jesus and a strenuous athletic Jesus. Uh, in The mid to early mid 19th century, late early 20th century, kind of had an image of well, an example of this was, you know, the person with the Bible in one hand and the rifle in the other who built the British Empire. Uh, You know, there's, but then there's also the the uh, social gospel that came along in the late 19th century, that uh, that that saw a kind of a social worker, Jesus, out there helping the poor and uh, lifting up the downtrodden. Uh, Jesus is a man who serves as a moral example of how to behave in our community. There was a Congregationalist minister in Topeka, Kansas, who wrote, named Charles Selden, whom you've probably never heard of, who wrote a tremendously influential, influential best-selling novel in 1896 called In His Steps. You've probably never heard of the novel, but you've heard of the saying introduced in the novel, what would Jesus do? <laughs> in this novel his whole community transformed themselves when they people started asking, what would Jesus do? And, which is to say, you know, oh he'd behave more humanely and more charitably and they started behaving that way. Their Jesus didn't carry an iron rod to chastise his foes. We get an entirely different Jesus in 1925 when advertising executive Bruce Barton published a book called The Man Nobody Knows. Barton was one of the founders of modern 20th century advertising and for decades his advertising agency was one of the lead agencies. In The Man Nobody Knows, Jesus, uh, Barton with the sort of muscular Christianity uh, approach, uh, he wanted to replace the weak and feminine Jesus, that's his words, not mine, he called Jesus weak and feminine in the popular imagination, with an inspirational business executive, which is what he saw. And He gave us a Jesus, as he said, who started with much less reputation than John the Baptist and a much smaller group of followers. He had only 12, and they were untrained, simple men with elementary weaknesses and passions. Yet because of the fire of his personal conviction, because of his marvelous instinct for discovering their latent powers, and because of his unwavering faith and patience, he molded them into an organization that carried on victoriously. It actually sounds like a kind of description of an ethical society, right? You take people, you have faith in your capacities, you're very patient and you work hard and you mold it into a great organization. Parenthetically, uh, in another book, uh, Barton ex- extolled Moses as a great real estate promoter. So. Uh, Jesus had a longer uh, career perhaps as a champion of social justice than he has as a business executive. Uh, Consider a poet, Quaker named Sarah N. Cleghorn from Vermont, apparently admired by Robert Frost, who, uh, uh, let me give you the first line, the first and last verses of her poem, Comrade Jesus. Thanks to Saint Matthew who had been at mass meetings in Palestine, we know whose side was spoken for when comrade Jesus had the floor. And the last verse, ah, let no local hymn refuse comrade Jesus hath paid his dues whatever other be debarred, whoever other be debarred comrade Comrade Jesus hath his red card. So, and there are at least two songs, uh, one by Woody Guffrey uh, to, both to the tune of Jesse James, uh, that also extolled Jesus. Uh, folk singer Dave Van Ronk, some of you may remember, with with friends, uh, published a little songbook in the late 1950s that had uh, these words: uh, "Jesus Christ was a man, an honest working man, a carpenter, true and brave." He told all the rich to give their money to the poor, so they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. With thieves on either side, Jesus Christ was crucified, and tears filled Mary's eyes, but his last words to you and me from that hill and cavalry were, Don't pray for me, organize! Uh, Jesus will always speak, I, by the way, I bought that little songbook at the Chicago IWW headquarters where they were selling it along with the uh, Little Red Songbook. Well, Jesus will always look like us. He will be with us in one form or another. As one scholar in considering the the role of Jesus in our, in, our, in fact it was E.R. Goodenough who I, I quoted in my opening words, as Goodenough wrote, about Jesus, the power of Jesus as an ideal of Western civilization has been precisely his power to change from age to age and embody our projections. However, just because some of us might call Jesus a projection does not mean that the image of Jesus is unimportant or not powerful. There there even might be some here this morning who find Jesus a comfort, and I do not mean to deny that comfort. Erwin uh, R. Goodenough, whom I just quoted and I quoted in our, our readings, uh, and, and, and a man who viewed both Jesus and God as a projection of ourselves, writes of, writes of himself that in times of meaning, he will. F- forget my qualifications and quibble and call upon Jesus and he comes." Even as one outside the Christian tradition, I was moved many years ago by an article in Sojourners, the Evangelical Christian Social Justice magazine that's you know published right here in Washington, uh, when they did a series of articles on the injust- on injustice under the heading, The Sufferings of Christ in Latin America. I'm sorry, Central America. The Sufferings of Christ in Central America. And this powerful metaphor has stuck with me since 1980. You know, this, this powerful, The Sufferings of Christ in Central America, as someone who is not a follower or a student of Christ, but as a very powerful metaphor. The magazine, of course, was talking about the suffering of the people of Central America, but this image shakes us and says that this suffering isn't some local or unimportant thing, but it calls out to the heavens for response, that this suffering is directly traceable, as the Easter story reminds us, to the reality of unjust systems, where the governing elite whether political religious or economic will try to crucify those who call for a better world It reminds us that it is possible for the oppressed to persevere to endure and to succeed even with all the miracles squeezed out this story of a Jewish teacher as told by many voices and finally stitched together in final form long after his death, and I might say not only final form but contradictory form, this story still has power. We need stories and the story of Jesus and the stories that are told in his name still breathe 2,000 years later. They still enlighten our path. They are profoundly human, humane, ethical tales. Let me, let's consider just one parable, the Good Samaritan. And I was about to say it's so well known that I didn't, I don't even need to, to, to remind you of it, but I discovered today that there are many people who really don't know the story of Good Samaritan. Uh, you know, in the story there's a, a traveler, a merchant, is going from, you know, place to place. He's fallen on by thieves who steal his goods, who steal his clothes, who leave him for dead in the ditch and all sorts of people pass by, all the powers of the community walk by, you know, all the people who are respected and honored and everything and they ignore him. And along comes a Samaritan who in the culture of that time and actually still today in that part of the world are are kind of a a disrespected people This lowly person stops, sees the traveler, you know, cleans him up, takes him to an inn, gives the innkeeper money, says, here, take care of him, get him well, I'll be by here in a little while later again. If you need more money, I'll give you more. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, just a powerful story. Which of us doesn't recognize ourselves in this story? Which of us has not been stranded by the roadside and stood there with our flashers going watching the cars buzz by? Which of us have not buzzed by somebody standing by the roadside with their flashers going and gone on our way? You know, we could be dangerous to stop and help somebody. You know, it's fitting that this Good Samaritan story form the basis of the sermon Martin Luther King gave just before he was assassinated. It's dangerous to go and help people. This is a powerful story. Consider also the golden rule. Here again, this is a basic idea is not new. It's, it's attributed to Confucius in a somewhat different form five hundred years before Jesus. What was new was Jesus taking a negative injunction. You know, don't do something that you don't do to someone else something you wouldn't want done to you. And made it positive. You know, do unto others as you would want done unto you. This is a great advance. The old rule said refrain from bad behavior. The new rule focused on one's actions. You know, at first glance it seems like a minor change. You know, it's just a little reversal here. But this is very important ethically because it moves the imperative from not doing something to doing something. You know, do it. This is a great contribution. I think even those of us who are not Christians benefit from the, some of the wisdom attributed to Jesus. It would be helpful if we took this parable of the Good Samaritan and made it a guide for our life. I think it would be helpful if we treated people, others, as we'd like to be treated. You shouldn't think of yourself as being a good person simply because you don't do bad things. Of course I know you wouldn't do that, you wouldn't be so self-satisfied, would you? I might, but you know, you wouldn't. (laughs) Uh, uh, After all, you know, the people who passed by the the traveler in the Good Samaritan uh, story weren't the people that attacked him. You know, they weren't the bad guys, they weren't guilty of robbery, but just as the robbers did, they left the traveler there to die. Well, whether or not the figure called Jesus moves us, I think that the story of Jesus has made a strong and lasting contribution, even to those of us who center our religion on ethics. This was the case for Felix Adler, of course the founder of ethical culture, and it's the case for us. We've got to go, Adler said, you know, we've got to go beyond Jesus. Here are three reasons why I think we need to go beyond Jesus. First, the golden rule, important as it has been, has its limitations. As the late ethical culture leader Sheldon Ackley wrote, the golden rule tends to undervalue the interests, needs, values, and even autonomy of other people. What I wish for myself cannot be the basis for judging what is best for others, for they may need and want a life much different from mine. I imagine maybe some of you here are uh, uh, into nonviolent communication techniques. That's something involved there, you know. What, who is that other person? What is that other person really saying? You know, you've got to get into them. Uh, both Sheldon Ackley and I prefer Felix Adler's rephrasing of the Golden Rule. Act so as to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. Act so as to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. In the other words, start by seeing the other in his or her own uniqueness rather than looking at yourself first. Second, Jesus takes us only so far. A great leader might proclaim universal and timeless truths, but he or she proclaims those truths in his or her time and place. Jesus spoke to us from a different world. You know, He was dealing with the problems of Jews in the first century under the Roman Empire. He didn't have to worry about things that you know, we have some ethical questions that he won't help us with. He didn't have to worry about what to do with his old cell phone. He didn't have he didn't have to worry about stem cell research or cloning, although in Christian theology I suppose he was the first clone. Uh, to, He didn't have to worry about end-of-life issues. Therefore, he doesn't give us a lot of guidance on life's tough issues. Even if we had exact knowledge of his personality, even if we had an authentic records of his teachings, none of which we have, his guidance would still be limited because he spoke from his time and we live in our time. A third problem with the Jesus as model approach is that people, including ourselves, would somehow answer the question, "What would Jesus do?" exactly as what we wanted to do. You know, you know. As when I was leader of the Baltimore Ethical Society, a woman once remarked, "You know, oh yeah, she can walk a mile in somebody's shoes, but it's still her feet in those shoes." And, you know, we all know that to some people Jesus hates gays, gun control, and taxes. What, and know, we can laugh at this. Oh yeah, you know, those people, you know, what do they know? But the same phenomena holds true for us. Whoever our leaders are, we tend to see ourselves in them. And this raises a particular challenge for us. Because we pretend to Project ourselves not only on Jesus but also on the world at large, who we are becomes crucial. If we're going to see the world as an image of ourselves, as we inevitably must, we need to be worthy of that vision. Going back to Emerson again, you know, Emerson didn't use the word project, but that's what he meant when he said in his essay on worship only that which we have within can we see without. If we meet no gods, it is because we harbor none. If there is grandeur in you, in you, you will find grandeur in porters and sweeps. He only is rightly immortal, to whom all things are immortal." What grandeur do we harbor in us? What possibility do we see for others and ourselves? What hope? What nobility will the Jesus in our image uh, reflect? Thus, the question is now: what will Jesus do, but what will I do as an individual? What will we do as community? This is our day, and we must make our contribution in our own way, in our own vision. Uh, indeed. We, we, we can't help but make it that way. Making it in our own way doesn't imply making it alone. You know, you're here this morning, you have a community. We have each other's community and we can choose what Coleman McCarthy called inner companions, writers, thinkers, and activists. We will remake those inner companions in our own image and translate them into our own philosophy, but the important thing is that they come to us when we need them. Well, I assume that there probably aren't many people here this morning who draw inspiration from the figure called Jesus. But we can all draw lessons from Jesus that word in quotes, however we visualize that person or that concept. Whatever he contributed or thought, he's done that. It's our turn now. It's our responsibility. We need to seek our ways, just as those who will follow us will seek their own ways. We know that they will look back and they will interpret our lives by their reality, but we hope that they will find that we made our contribution in our time. That is my hope for us this spring morning. Happy spring.